I think I have this sort of working theory that everything in terms of skills, every skill is learned at 3 a.m. alone in your chair. And so what we're doing when we're hiring people is we're looking for like, who's the person that will be up, you know, it doesn't have to be literally, but metaphorically at 3 a.m. in their chair, picking up these skills that they need to be effective at our organization. Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Build Your Network podcast, the only top-rated show committed to helping you grow your business, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Let's get into the show. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. Today, I'm sitting down with Ryan Culp. Ryan is a five-time founder and self-taught developer. After working in New York City and San Francisco as a marketer for several tech stars and YC-backed startups. He founded a company called FOMO.com in 2016 and now runs Fork Equity, a micro private equity fund. Ryan, what's up, man? It's been a while since I initially reached out, but I appreciate you for circling back. And now here we sit on the show. What's going on? Yes. Hey, man. Yeah. I've I've literally been around the world and about to be back. The last time we connected was two years ago. And um, I think I've picked up hopefully some new interesting insights that could make doing a show today better than it would have been back then. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's the goal, right? If if we're not uh, if we're not if we're not changing in a couple of years, then we're probably doing something wrong. So let's rewind the clock first before we do that, and talk about how we got here in the first place. So, 12, 13 year old Ryan Culp set the scene. What was life like for you? Thirteen year old Ryan was well. I learned many years later that my teachers called me precocious, and I didn't know what that meant at the time. Thought it was just another way to disparage me for being loud, obnoxious, class clown, didn't listen to authority. But uh, I was uh, very, I have always been very outgoing, very anti-authoritarian, kind of a little bit of a troublemaker. I think when I was 13, I was sent to the guidance counselor and they're like, Ryan, we just are trying to understand why you do what you do in the classroom. And my parents had to come. And I literally said something like, well, my number one goal is to make people laugh. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh, so, so what you career know, did they try to tell you to do at that point? Uh, yeah, they're like, you're not going to have a career, right? So yeah. I think maybe a guidance counselor in 2022, a little more open-minded. And I think a lot of people in education seem to be a little too open-minded these days. But sure. they would probably say, yeah, Ryan, you're, you should be a comedian, right? Or whatever yeah. it is, whatever your inclination like is, they might push yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would they would give me my first like tripod for my phone. Uh, but even back then, back then, what does that mean? 2003, when I was 13, a little more rigid. And so it's like, if you don't fit in, you're, no, you're not going to make it. You're going to be a loser. And we're actually hearing songs these days on the radio from, I think, our generation, other millennials, like, mom, look at me now and all these things. They said I wasn't going to. That's sort of like a common theme because oh, yeah. we just barely might have been one of the last generations of that vibe where if you don't fit into the mold, the parents, the authorities are going to tell you that you're not going to make it in the world. So that was me back then. And I think over those last 18 years, I'm now 32, I've been able to try to channel that same energy into slightly more productive and definitely more lucrative you know, endeavors, but the main spirit never went away. So if school kind of wasn't your thing, what was your path post high school? Right after high school, I actually thought I was going to be a rock star. So nice. I didn't apply to any colleges, like junior year, senior year. I took the SAT one time. Don't even remember my score. It wasn't good. Didn't study. 
And my girlfriend at the time was our valedictorian. All of my friends were like the top kids, you know, all of my friends went to MIT, Harvard, everywhere. And here I was not even applying to college. So everyone's like worried about Ryan. They're worried about Ryan behind his back, sometimes to my face, usually not. And, you know, because that's all you have when you're like a teenager. It's like, what college are you going to if, if you're lucky enough to be able to go to college? And uh, we don't have a lot of ways to differentiate. We don't have a lot of life experience. All we know, again, is what our parents say. So it's like, get good grades, go to college, score high on the SAT. So I wasn't applying anywhere. I almost got kicked out of my senior year of high school. I missed like 85 days or something. I even moved out of my parents' house on my 18th birthday, as sort of like at midnight on the day before my birthday, just to sort of spite them and show them I could. That's a whole other story. But anyway, so I get out of high school. I need what everybody needs. I need money. I had already been working a bit as a waiter. I'd done all kinds of jobs. I got into making gold teeth with a Korean guy. Funny enough, now I'm living in Korea. And I got into mowing grass, teaching guitar, still was a waiter. And ultimately, that was how I supported myself. Lived in a few different places, including my grandpa's house. Played in bands, played lots of shows. All of that came crashing down. That's what happens when you get in a band of people addicted to drugs. They sell all of your gear and you can't play shows or look them, <laughs> look them in the face anymore. And so the band broke up. I kind of did a solo album. And then I was like, all right, I need to get serious. So I went to the military recruiting office and said, I want to join the Marines and, you know, go kill people. So they're like, no, no, no. Okay. Yeah. So we started training together <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you go to the military recruiting office, that's like the OG sales, right? They're like, so they, they slid this. I mean, it's so ridiculous thinking about it now. And it's, it's a little bit of a bummer that this works. Uh, and I, I really respect the military, but this tactic is what I'm referring to. He slid to me these like physical wooden blocks that each had different words engraved on them. And one of the words was like adventure. And he's like, so it's like, you're literally a four-year-old sitting at play table and you have all these wooden blocks. And he's like, I want you to slide back the ones that are the most exciting to you. So you're like adventure, you know, <laughs> free college because there's the GI Bill. And like I couldn't, I, it's weird that I was in that state of mind that I wasn't insulted by, you know, yeah, yeah. wooden blocks as a grown-ass man. But anyway, <laughs> so that goes, that happens a few weeks of kind of training with them. I take the ASVAP test. That's very easy, much better than the SAT for me. Then uh, I go to my parents like right before I'm supposed to kind of sign off. And they're like, you know, this hasn't been a great relationship the last few months since you moved out <laughs> on your 18th birthday at midnight. But if you could just go to college, like go the more traditional route, we'll support you. What that meant was like the difference between my, you know, tuition that the state would give me from a, a scholarship versus uh, cash they would pay. So they did that. And uh, so I'm grateful for that. So I ended up going to college a year later, took some summer classes and graduated on time with the rest of my, you know, high school graduate friends. So that was kind of how I got into school and what happened. And then after college is where I think the real fun begins. Yeah. So what happened? So I finished college throughout college. I ended up being this like amazing student in terms of, you know, studying, getting grades, not missing class, had some close calls, obviously had some skips, obviously, but pretty much I was like, straight A student. My GPA for the first couple of years was like a 4.3. That's where you get like above a 97. So I was super, you know, going hard. And what, what, was it, was it just because you cared about it more or the material was more interesting or why, <sighs> what made you more engaged? I've been really examining this for easily the last 10 years. Like why essentially a, a flip switched 
And I said, you know, in high school, I didn't apply myself. My whole life, I didn't apply myself. What would happen if I did? What would that be like? What would that feel like? And I got into that group. You know, I, I started surrounding myself with people who also cared about studying, not mm-hmm. with, you know, losers who are addicted to drugs and steal your gear. Interesting. And so it's kind of like your network affects how you behave as a human. It's almost like our behavior is the average of the five people around <laughs> us. Anyway, sorry, almost like that. Yeah. yeah. And so then I started just surrounding myself with other ambitious, smart people in college. I did a ton of internships. I worked uh, and, and jobs. I worked for Red Bull. I worked for Microsoft. I interned for Teach for America. I was the president of our school programming board where we do lots of events and comedians and stuff. Mm. And it was just like a 180 person. I mean, again, my attitude was kind of the same. I was still goofy. I still broke rules. But yeah, I really kind of was able to stand beside myself and observe what is Ryan capable of because if you looked at you know under 19 version of me i was just another troublemaker kid and here i was kind of doing well so i, I finished college and i had this but, but before before you go on there i want to point something out yeah. that you said that i don't want to just uh kind of gloss over i think the first person that really pointed this out to me was tim ferris but you said a second ago that that you you for the first time had the ability to stand by yourself and look at your life, essentially from a third-party perspective, instead of thinking about it through your lens, stand beside yourself and look at yourself and go like, what is this person capable of if I were not this person, right? Like if, if I didn't have the thoughts, experiences, perspectives, and context that I have and everything, what would I view this person being capable of? And I think the ability to pull yourself out of any situation and observe yourself and your behavior and your actions from a third-party perspective is 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 a very underrated skill, really, that, that that will take you really far in life. And so, I I wanted to take a second and acknowledge that before we just kind of move on. Uh, but uh, but yeah, sorry to interrupt. No, that's right on. And you know, even regarding that, you said your lens. I think what we want to do is develop our lens such that it is objective, so that anytime I'm essentially evaluating myself, it's as if I'm you evaluating me. I want to be harder on myself than my average closest friends are going to be on me. Because if we are influenced by our closest uh, environment and those people aren't keeping it real with us and telling us, Ryan, you're getting a little fat. Ryan, you're you know you're doing this too much. You're doing that yeah. too little then who is? I mean, you know, our moms can be useful for that kind of thing, but a lot of us move away from our moms, some of us on our 18th birthday. So you can't rely on that. You have to develop that objective uh, sense of uh, self. I don't want to say cynicism, but sometimes it looks like cynicism, self-criticism. So I finished college and I, I write all this stuff down on a piece of paper. I learned that this is called the resume. And the resume is what you trade like a currency for a job. And then the job gives you money and then you go to the bar with the money. So that was my understanding of, of the world as a 22-year-old. Yeah, economics, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, I give you the resume, you give me the money. Resume. And then they give me the beer, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they give me, this is like, this is how it works. And uh, so then I start putting all this together and I start applying. And I was super, I, I've never really said this stuff to anyone, but I was super... Um, I guess a bit arrogant, or I was going to say super egotistical. I thought I was like, and you know, any company would would be lucky to have me. Right, I'm 22, but I had all of these sort of gigs lined up, and I did have a lot more experience than the average 22 year old compared to even a 25 year old. I was still, I, I knew nothing, or 25 year old me. But at the time, I thought like anyone will be lucky to have me. Getting a job will be easy because I had 
been able to get jobs easily until that point. Yeah. Of course, I learned later that's because in college, they kind of greased the wheels, you know, like if a, if a company like Red Bull says, we're going to hire someone at this college, it's like, well, it's already, at least there's a job for sure. Then you yeah. get out of college, suddenly like nobody wants to give anyone their money unless you prove it to them. So it's a totally different vibe, employer, employee, you know, yeah. relations. And so I started applying to jobs. I even applied, and I've never said this before. I applied to Google. I'm 22. I wasn't a programmer. I had studied marketing. I applied to Google and you had to upload like a cover letter, right? Like you couldn't click next unless you hit upload. So, I, and I really didn't want to do this. I didn't want to be customizing my cover letter because I was like, right. I'll get a job so quickly, you know, let me just fire off my resume. And my cover letter was literally two sentences. And it was like, you know, I did this and this. And I even trolled. I recall my cover letter to Google was the second sentence literally said, like, you'd be lucky to have me. Something like that. Like, (laughs) (laughs) needless to say, I never heard back from Google. And of course, that's a good thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, I was stumped at the time. And so then I'm like, okay, so a few months of this go by, maybe two months of hardcore applying to jobs goes by. Again, I was doing other work as a freelancer. I was paying my bills, living in a loft in Atlanta. Like it was an okay life, but it wasn't like career oriented work, you know? Sure. Yeah. And so then I was like, okay, I guess I had to kind of swallow my pride. It's like, I'm not going to be in like a tech startup because I'd kind of started learning a little bit about tech startups and um, it's like, okay, well, I'll do that thing I was interested in with the military adventure. And I had always had a little bit of an interest in Korea and Korean culture. Growing up, I played violin for many years. So I had Korean friends through that uh, extracurricular. And so I applied to be an English teacher in Korea. Long story short, I got that job. And then I lost that job because I had something on my quote unquote criminal record, which actually was a fake thing. It was dismissed. It was a misunderstanding. But at the time, I didn't realize it was on my record. I thought it didn't exist. So I got the job withdrawn. I then spent a few months getting that record expunged. So now I could teach English in Korea if I wanted to do that job. But that was a big blow. So now I'm like several months after graduating, back to square one, had my, not so crushed, but just a little bit of my ego crushed. Like, okay, let's get a reality check. What skills do I really have or not have? Ultimately, I decided, okay, I got to take this into my own hands, which is how that's then been the theme of my life since then, you know, like got to do it myself. No one else is going to give me permission. So I did a little Kickstarter campaign to write a book. And here again, my ego is showing to write a book about lessons I learned about business. <laughs> this is like, it's like I'm 22. Now, yeah. at the time, I had run. Yeah, a like, couple small businesses. Like I had a couple LSCs in college. We did one of them, we did hookah catering. So we took hookahs to nightclubs and we'd rent uh, it out and split nice. the money. The other one, we did pinback buttons like that you'd put on a shirt or book bag. And we sold those to sports teams, politicians. Like that actually, that one actually went kind of well. So anyway, I had a tiny bit of experience. I thought, let's write a book. So I do this Kickstarter. I write this book. I use like the Kindle, which had just come out pretty recently. I started publishing. And one person who gets this book was the CEO of a tech stars company in New York City. And like, again, long story short, probably within five, six days, email back forth. Hey, do you want to come interview? Book the flight, did a two-day in-office like working interview where you kind of sit alongside the three-person team, got the offer, went back, packed up my uh, U-Haul 
and moved to New York City. So that was like, boom, got thrust into tech startups, moved from Atlanta to New York, my first full-time salary job, my first stock options with, you know, four-year vesting, one-year cliff, like all of that just said almost overnight. So we could say that was my big break. At the time, it, it didn't feel that way because it wasn't like some amazing salary. The hours were, were kind of long for a while. It's an early stage startup. But looking back now, it's like, if that guy, and that we're still good friends, if, and that startup is still going, if that guy didn't believe in me and take a chance on me, I don't know what I'd be doing now. And so for the last 10 years, to some way, I try to give back by finding like who's the next me that I can bring on who isn't super experienced or maybe doesn't have a lot of skills, but has like the energy and the audacity to try. And who can I, how can I kind of like put this karma back in the universe? Totally. I mean, isn't that like, as a person that hires people, man, it's like, isn't that more important anymore? You know, like skills can be taught, things can be learned, but like alignment on core values, ambition, like a good attitude, like some of those things are just like, I look, I can't teach you to do these things better. You got to have that. And if you have that, everything else can be taught. Like we, you can, we can learn all this other stuff, you know, like I think that's why we're almost seeing like a lot of these, even tech companies now that are just like, ah, you don't really have to have a degree, you know what I mean? To, to work with us, as long as you are a fit with our culture, our core values, and you're willing to uh, be teachable, come in, learn in, in the environment and work hard, come on board. You know what I mean? That's right on. I think I have this sort of working theory that everything in terms of skills Every skill is learned at 3 a.m. alone in your chair. And so what we're doing when we're hiring people is we're looking for like, who's the person that will be up, you know, it doesn't have to be literally, but metaphorically at 3 a.m. in their chair, picking up these skills that they need to be effective at our organization. They don't necessarily have to already have them, like you're saying, but who's the person? Can I picture that this person is going to figure that out in between the lines? And if not then, you know, it might not be a good fit or maybe the opposite, right? Sometimes you find people are so overqualified and you think they won't be challenged enough and they're going to use us as a stepping stone. So, you know, hiring, recruiting, definitely art and a science, but um, that was how I was brought into this, thrust into this world. So like you're saying, that's how I'm trying to also find others. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine 
is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Yeah. So, uh, so let's talk about what you're working on now. Because uh, in, in, uh, in between your time working in marketing with several um, Y Combinator and uh, Techstars startups, you started, built, and sold a company called FOMO.com and uh, recently had a multi-seven-figure exit, uh, which now allows you to kind of do kind of what we've been, we've been, we've been, we've been talking about it and focus on some other things um, in these last couple of years. So uh, talk, us through, talk us through that process, what that was like for you as a, uh, as a founder to see a company through from idea all the way through to a liquidity event, and then what you're working on now. Well, uh, yeah, so this is my... And, and by the way, what what you just mentioned, this might be the first time really saying this. This is brand new news as of this show coming out. We sold FOMO, but the idea, the concept. So you know, first of all, as a founder or as a tech entrepreneur, maybe more specifically than any founder, the ultimate goal I think automatically is that you sell one day, that you exit. Not only that you exit, but that maybe from the ego perspective, the thing keeps going without you. Because that feels like now you're breaking the laws of gravity. You know, like anything will keep running as long as you keep waking up and running it. But to watch something work without you is like a highest level of, of pride. Yeah. And uh, even Tim Ferriss or Nassim Taleb, someone talked about that. Like you don't want to, you don't want to run the train station. Like you want to own the tracks that someone operates the train station on. Mm. And so it's like all about kind of like always increasing our leverage. And employees can increase leverage up to the point that they no longer become an employee. Uh, the founder CEO can increase leverage up to the point that they become like, I don't know, the chairman or something or their name's on the wall and, and they're actually gone, but it's now a university library. So we're always trying to increase our leverage. And the way we get there often is, I think, very nonlinear. It used to just be like, go from this position to manager, director, senior director, VP, whatever. That was sort of like uh, aligned with the word leverage. But now the word leverage sort of means getting the same results with less input, same output, less input. And so the irony of, I think, being a founder, if it works out well, is that your last day as a founder, you make more money and do less work than, than your first day where you made no money and you did all the work. <laughs> and being yeah. able to delay that gratification, for us, this was a six-year process where like, for the first two years, I had no salary. I got like Uber Eats, you know, a couple times a month on the company dime. The rest of it went back into dev, marketing, whatever. And then I had a salary, but then we never raised the salary. Actually, the salary has been the same for, I think, the last four and a half years, which is okay. And it's a good salary, but like it didn't, you know, it didn't scale the way that maybe an employee would. And, um, you know, we went from like my personal cell phone number on the homepage in 2016 and people would call 2017 as well. People would call sometimes at two in the morning because they're like in Ireland and they would use Google voice and call our number. Right. And I would be chilling at home playing my Xbox one and, and in New York city where I lived at the time. And I would answer, this is FOMO. You know? <laughs> and uh, it's like, I got, I was able to adopt this mentality that had stuck with me. All you have to do is whatever it takes. 
And that's what I did. And the first few years weren't that fun. Looking back now, it already starts to feel like the glory days, like it was all for a purpose. You know, this is the formula, you, you know, yeah. you blood, sweat and tears and you do the thankless work. At the time, it was just like, I have no other choice, no other option. And my whole reputation was riding on this thing kind of working. Since sure. then, we've been able to do more projects where if one fails, it doesn't matter that much from, from the image perspective, because you're like, hey, you place many bets and sometimes bets don't work. Right, um, right. But at the time, it was like this was my synonymous with my life was the work. Synonymous with my personality was our yeah. brand. It's all um, or nothing it, thing, yeah. It was an all or nothing thing. And, um, you know, so that, that was kind of what FOMO was like 2016, 17, 18. Throughout that process, I also became decent at programming. I had done like an online bootcamp right before starting FOMO, which uh, ended up being really serendipitous timing because then we get the code base. And actually, so basically we we bought an app called Notify that we rebuilt and rebranded to FOMO. So gotcha. I'm the founder of FOMO, but I'm not the original founder of, of what the product does. Nice. And the product is it's a social proof uh, tool. So if, if you have like an online store, we work a lot with e-commerce will show recent purchases and sales when you're browsing a website so that it increases your, you know, your conversion rate. But through that process, like got more into coding, got more into sales, cold email. We did, you know, events and conferences, speed talks, uh, all of the little micro tactics that uh, small businesses as well as tech startups use. I had to learn by doing trial by fire. Of course, I'd had some experiences working at companies prior to being the founder, but it's a whole, as you know, it's a whole other like ball game when your job is to close a deal and literally take out the trash, you know, on the same day at your office or whatever. So that was, that was that experience. And around the middle of our FOMO tenure, or maybe around 2017, we started a thing called Fork Equity, which is where we buy other small SaaS and we try to apply some of those key insights uh, of the playbook grow them, you know, improve the design, improve the dev features, roadmap, grow them, try to, I don't want to say automate them, but make them um, scalable enough that we don't need a full-time team working on them. And sometimes we've exited those as well. And so leading up to FOMO, I think we've had a couple smaller exits, another seven-figure exit about we had a couple years ago. So that was my first experience with like founder makes company, founder sells company, what now? Yeah. And to be honest, and I'm not trying to burst any bubbles, but it wasn't as thrilling as I thought it would be. We sold a company called CrossSell a couple of years ago to SureSwift Capital. And it looks like it's in great hands. And SureSwift is an awesome, awesome operator. They have like 60 different SaaS apps. But uh, just for me personally, it's like my celebration was a $15 lunch alone at a Korean barbecue restaurant. Like I didn't do anything. I didn't feel the win. It was really underwhelming. And it wasn't like, you know, this is my baby. I'm sad. I wasn't sad. It was never an emotion. I never had an emotional connection to this project. It just made me realize that my goals, and I think a lot of our goals are not so great. And so having this singular focus on like sell this company is almost purely an ego goal. Maybe if you have a family and you're dying to get your wife a car or a house or something like that, then the financial aspect of selling a company can have true rewards because you yeah. literally get to turn your company and like convert it into sort of happiness or lifestyle improvements for those yeah. that you love. But I almost think we get a greater sense of joy from giving to people we love than ourselves. 
So like I would get more joy if I bought someone else a car than myself a car. And, and I'm not saying that to sound like I'm a good guy. I'm saying, I think that humans are wired that way. Yeah. And so here I was, was like, we sold our first company and I didn't need the money and I don't have expensive tastes. All of my shirts are from Target. Yeah. Um, so it was like, okay. So then for the last two years, I realized I got to have better goals. So I actually stepped down as CEO of FOMO like two months later, three months yeah. after that other sale. And we have a new CEO and she's been doing great. And over the last two years, she's been running it. And then now we've sold FOMO just a few weeks ago under her tenure. So nice. all of it now is, is you know, it's, it's a totally different feeling than the last time. It feels more accomplished, feels more satisfying. We were able to do this all without me like running it. I'm also not the one in, in the golden handcuffs, you know, yeah. uh, hint, hint. But uh, yeah, so I'm thrilled. And now this is catapulting me into my next chapter of life, which is going to be starting a, a ranch, getting into maybe farming, raising a little bit of livestock. I don't know how to do any of this, but you know, catch me in two years and I can give you I was that. I say, you'll learn everything <laughs> else, right? Like it's all learned. That's awesome, man. Well, listen, dude, I, I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, this, this has been a lot of fun. I, I want to ask you this question uh, just because I always find the answers fascinating, man. It's, uh, it's always like a totally experiential-based question. No right or wrong answer. Who you know or what you know? Which of those two is the more important asset in life and why? It's not even close that it's, it's what you know. And maybe the internet is actually why this is so obvious to me that not obvious to other people. It's a set phrase that it's about who you know and not what you know. I understand that. And I'm not saying that it's about what you know to be, um, to be a contrarian, you know? You can always catch when someone's trying to be different for the sake of being different. It's disgusting. But it's about what you know because the internet will sort of take care of the rest. The internet is the great equilibrium. When what you know is written down, and that's sort of the caveat here, if what you know is written down, someone will find it because there's this awesome website. It's called G-O-O-G-L-E.com. And people go on there and they're like, I want to know about blah, blah, blah. And they don't say, I want to know someone who knows about blah, blah, blah. No one goes on Google, who knows Travis? And then I show up. <laughs> it doesn't happen. But they say, who knows about how to buy micro acquisitions, how to buy micro SaaS? Well, when someone types that in, I show up. So it doesn't matter if we know each other. It doesn't matter if I know 50 other founders or not. Someone wants to know what I know. And through that, they find me. Uh, the internet is, is why we have, I think, that paradigm shift. But again, the most important thing is you have to write it down. And by write it down, that could mean make a video. That could mean write it down. That could mean paint it. You have to put what's in here, this valuable knowledge that you've synthesized through reading books and podcasts and whatever it is that you do in your, your daily life, you have to synthesize it and, and put it out outside of you so that it can scale and be consumed by others. If you don't make what you know consumable by others, then yes, it is a game of who you know, because then that's the only way someone can get access to your knowledge is through that direct connection of someone else. Well, dude, like I said, I appreciate you coming on the show. Before we take off here, where, where can people you know, f hear more about what you got going on and be a part of any future projects or work with you in any way? Follow me on Twitter, Ryan C. Culp. That's where I do all of my trolling. I also actually hire people there. I recruit. I do all kinds of side projects through Twitters and DMs. Uh, and if you want to work together otherwise, check us out at forkequity.com. We're always looking for operators, investors, and partners. Ryan C. Colt on Twitter. Um, and then forkequity.com if you want to check out uh, working with them in any sort of capacity. Uh, Ryan, thanks for coming to the show, man. This is a lot of fun. Uh, had a great time chatting with you. We'll let you know when this goes out. Thanks for having me, dude. 
Hey, hey, thanks for listening to this episode. That's it for today. As you all know, this show is completely free. Our only ask is that if you found anything valuable in this episode or in any of the episodes that you've listened to, then share it with somebody else and leave us a quick rating review in whatever platform you're listening to right now. It would be super, super helpful for us. Uh, so that's it for today, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. Catch you next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.